CPBC was planted, planted just a little over five years ago. Now, many of you know that I was a bivocational pastor until March of last year. And we also have also met at the GACAR building uh, for, for four, four and, and a half years. years. And now, now the Lord has moved us to this new building, and he has uh, given us this uh, gift, if you will, to, which better suits our vision for ministry at Grace Bible Church. We're very thankful for having the GACAR building for so long. It was such a good place for us to be as we uh, got ready for this new adventure that we're now on, this new facility, this uh, place gives us the ability to grow for the next few years without needing to purchase a building of our own. I mean, so this is on Sunday, this is our building, and I think that's going to be an incredible, an incredible time for us, and I think I'm, ex I'm excited, and I hope you are excited about this new phase of ministry for Grace Bible Church. We're looking forward to the future with great hope for what the Lord is doing with this church. Last week, Avey and I met with some of the ministry leaders uh, to get feedback regarding the individual ministries within the church. And it is our hope that these ministries that we're doing will flourish and that God will raise up future leaders from among the church. I believe, I think that that first meeting went uh, well and it was a great start. Please pray, pray for us as we consider how we are to evaluate each ministry and ensure that each ministry is upheld by or the pillars of our philosophy ministry, philosophy of ministry. Personally, I'm excited and have been excited to see uh, the Lord's handiwork at Grace Bible Church. As you have just heard earlier with Bay, the Riso Kelly wedding will occur next week, next Sunday. I think that's an exciting time. And, and, and they have, as you know, graciously invited the church to attend the wedding. Uh, I, I hope that you'll be able to do so. I'm thankful to see, I'm thankful to see the Lord's work in, a, in, a, in very tangible ways. Even at the end of this month, I think we're scheduled to have a baptism. And so, so not only are we having um, the weddings, we're going to have baptisms. This morning, we're going to start the building off with communion. And so it's just uh, it's an exciting time for us as a, as a church. And in a few months, I think we're going to have maybe even the first baby dedication as we welcome these babies on uh, with us. And so I'm excited for what the Lord is doing, and I hope you are as well. From the beginning, we have simply trusted, and I want to keep iterating this. We have reiterating this. this we have simply trusted that Jesus is building his church. We trust that Grace Bible Church is his handiwork. And we have understood that our responsibility as, a, as leaders, as a church body, is to walk in faithfulness. And I can attest that, that he himself is faithful, and he is not slack in keeping his promises. That's what 2 Peter 3.9 says. Now, Peter made that statement regarding in 2 Peter 3.9 regarding salvation, but I'm confident that this could be applied to all his promises, including his promise to build his church. Brethren, we serve a God who has made many promises to his people. I'm certain that he will fulfill and bring to pass each promise that he has made. The way he does this may be obscured from us. From our point of view, we may not completely understand, but that's not because there isn't a lack of clarity as to what he will accomplish. He has made his will super clear, if you will, uh, he, we may not fully understand, but it's not from a, a lack of clarity. From our very limited perspective, the world may seem out of control. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, that is, the world wobbles. 
The world wobbles. It wobbles one direction and then another. It may seem that God's promises cannot come to pass. It may at times seem like there are too many moving parts. Friends, we don't have to help God. He will accomplish His will and purposes without our help. Though, He uses us, right? Now, you may protest, he graces, but He graciously chooses to use the weak and the foolish to accomplish His will. Now, today we are speaking of foolish, speaking of weak, speaking of uh, silly. We are returning to our study in Jonah. Jonah is the prophet who tried to thwart God's plan at every turn. But in every way that Jonah resisted, God used him according to his will and purpose. That would be God's will and purpose. As we study this incredible story, this incredible book, we should take great solace that God uses us uses each and every one of us despite our ignorance. He uses us sometimes despite our weaknesses. And he even uses us sometimes despite our profound foolishness and even obstinance. In the words of Paul, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Brethren, the book of Jonah gives us a vivid lesson in how God accomplishes His will even through a foolish, weak, and obstinate prophet. And I believe Jonah will give us great insight into how God has used a foolish, weak, and obstinate nation, that would be the nation of Israel, to bring about all that He has promised. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, Moses says, The Lord did not set your love his love on you, that would be the Israel he's speaking to, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because God loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Beloved, we can trust in that promise. Now, as we start, as we continue this series, I need to state my indebtedness to Abner Chow, who has helped form my and shape my understanding of this book of Jonah. And I know that that Bay dislikes me doing this, but I also need to give him credit for being my soundboard as I prepared this sermon series. And I should also name another friend, Andy Dagenall. He gave me my first glimpse into the majesty of God's work through Jonah in a sermon that he preached almost six years ago. So this series, in my mind and heart, has been being formed for six years. Uh, that, my, that's, that, that night when he preached that sermon, uh, that's when it began in my heart that I wanted to preach through, to, through Jonah. It's just taken me this long uh, to get here. Now, may the fruit of those men be used to captivate you with God's glory, with God's glory and majesty as revealed through this tiny book in the Old Testament. So let me pray, and then we will get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done in this church body and all you will continue to do. Father, we know that you get all the glory, and we would have it no other way so, Lord, we pray that even now, even today in this preaching of your word, that you would be glorified, that your word would not return void, that it would do the work that it was intended to do. In Christ's name, amen. 
Now, I normally start with reading the text, but I'm going to skip that this morning. So please turn in your Bibles, a little bait and switch, I think, but please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 10. I want to set the stage this morning as we begin our study in Jonah chapter 1. Now, let me give you a quick context of 2 Kings 10. During this time, Jehu it was the king of the northern tribes of Israel. Prior to his reign, the northern kingdom had endured some tumultuous years at the hand of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, then came his son, Ahab's son, Jehoram, who, who ruled for 12 years. Uh, now, Ahab, Ahab was an incredibly evil king, uh, the worst of, I would say, the worst of the kings of Israel. Now, while Jehoram was not as bad, he still did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's according to 2 Kings 3, 2 and 3. During the time of Jehoshaphat of Judah, Jehoshaphat had an alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel. Now, now you got to remember the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, so they formed this alliance between the house of Amri and the house of David, and that continued with Azariah of Israel. Now, ultimately, this alignment was ended, and now at this point, it's worth noting that Judah profited from their alliance with the, the northern, northern tribes. Now, what you have to understand is geographically, Israel formed a buffer between the northern enemies such as Assyria and Judah in the south. So Israel stood between the, the northern enemies such as Assyria and Judah, which was in the south. So they formed a buffer. Now, this area between, between the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms was at a crossroads, which gave, uh, that, that is called the Benjamin, cent, or Central Benjamin Plateau. Now, this, this crossroads was incredibly important because whoever controlled the central Benjamin Plateau also controlled access to Jerusalem from the north. So it was incredibly important to Judah that that be controlled by them. And so Israel formed a buffer between them and the, their enemies to the north. Now it is in this context that I want to read 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Now, earlier in chapter 10, it records that Jehu had wiped out uh, all who remained to Ahab in Samaria. He destroyed, he completely destroyed him. Therefore, God promised four generations of sons and grandsons would sit. He promised that four generations would sit on the throne of Israel. Now, I would argue that this promise started a time clock, a time clock which would culminate in the destabilization and destruction of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. Now, at the time, Jeroboam II, at the time of Jonah, Jeroboam II was sitting on the throne. We found that out last week. Now, Jeroboam II is the third king in that promised succession. Now, as we said last week, he reigned for 41 total years. Now, his reign, as we again said last week, was marked by relative peace and expansion of their borders. But what we have to understand, this was all a ticking time bomb. This was all a ticking time bomb. After the fourth king dies, after King Four dies, so there's four total kings, Jeroboam is the second is the third, it's just a matter of time before the kingdom of Israel fails. 
<coughs> and if the kingdom, if the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel falls, there is no longer any buffer between the enemies of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So they have common enemies, and there's no longer any buffer there. So Israel would no longer provide protection for what we call the central Benjamin Plateau. Again, this is a the land bridge that connects all of Israel. So if you control this area, literally you control all of Israel. So when the northern king falls, the southern king knows it's just a matter of time before they face the same fate. In other words, the end is coming. It is coming. The time clock is ticking. The time bomb is there. Later, Revelation tells us that Judah will fall in 586 after the fall of, of uh, the northern kingdom. Now, all these things are coming to a head with Jonah. When he, when he is called to go to Nineveh, the great city and capital of the Assyrians. Now, that ought to, that ought to prick your ear. The Assyrians are what? The enemies, one of the enemies to the north. Now, we shouldn't miss the irony in this that God called this prophet from Israel to go to the, to his enemies, to the enemy of Israel for the purpose of warning them. Now, as we transition to Jonah chapter one, I want to remind you again of last week's sermon. We're looking at Jonah and its connections to the rest of Scripture as as acted out as a play before our eyes. Now, in this play, <coughs> I forgot my tea this morning. In this play, uh, we started with the prologue. The prologue was in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, the scribes and the Pharisees were challenging Jesus' ministry and blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus rebuked them and accused them of, of uh, again, of, of blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. Then they went so far as to ask for a further sign that Jesus was from God or Jesus was from the Father. And he responded that the only sign that they would receive is the sign of Jonah. That's in Matthew 12, 38 and 39. And Jesus' response, though, then was that Jonah, it shows that Jonah is not a big fish story. He says the only sign that you're going to receive is the sign of Jonah the prophet. So Jesus takes this story of Jonah, this big fish story of Jonah, as being the truth. Now last week I argued that this account also plays a huge role in understanding God's entire redemptive work. Now I'll give you a, a huge hint. The prologue that I gave you in Matthew chapter 12 foreshadows the ending of Jonah and the beginning of the church. So just put that in your, take that, take note and, and just put that down that this prologue foreshadows the ending of Jonah and the beginning of the church. Now I promise we will see and understand all of this when we finish this series. Now, after the prologue last week, we watched the opening act, the opening act, a great city. And we saw the prophet Jonah. Last week, uh, we saw that uh, Jonah was a prophet from the northern tribes of Israel. He prophesied during the time, <clears throat> time of Jeroboam II. Now, his name, we saw, was, means dove, which doves are associated with what? With peace. But they're also associated with silliness or even stupidity. As we find, or as we study the book of Jonah, we're going to find that he is a silly dove who has no sense. Uh, that's uh, Hosea 7.11, uh, likens the dove to silliness. Now, during Jonah, Jonah's time, 
the northern tribes enjoyed a rel- relative prosperity under Jeroboam II. We've already said that now, again. But it was a time of increasing spiritual bankruptcy. They were increasingly idolatrous, and as a result, God would soon judge them. And, and he would judge them for their faithlessness. Now, as I said earlier, the, the clock was ticking. The end was very near. Just a few years later, in 722 B.C., God would use Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom and take them into captivity. The northern kingdom's apostasy and God's upcoming judgment forms the backdrop to what happens with Jonah. Now, last time we delved into Israel's history to better understand their mindset and why they have come to this critical juncture. Now, during that previous sermon, we took an extended time to review Yahweh's plans through uh, three different, the words of three different prophets. We started with Obadiah, and then we looked at Joel, and then we went back to Moses. For the purpose of review, we're going to start with Moses and In Deuteronomy, Moses addressed the people through a series of sermons. In Deuteronomy 4, he prophesied their future in the promised land. First, he exhorted them to remember all that God had done in their midst. And then he warned them that to obey the statutes and judgments that God had given Moses for the people to obey. Now, in Deuteronomy 4, 9, I believe sums up Moses' exhortations very nicely. He says this in Deuteronomy 4, 9, Only give to your, heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which you, your eyes have seen and they do not part from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Now, in Deuteronomy 4, 25, he prophesies that they would dwell, that would be Israel would dwell in the land for a long time, Then they would act corruptly and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's an important phrase, that they would be doing, would do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Then then Moses says the following in Deuteronomy 4.26. He says this, he, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but you will be utterly destroyed. As you, as you survey the kings of the northern tribes, the text says over and over. Now, the, as you survey, I'm sorry, as you survey the kings in, in first and second kings, the text says over and over, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, that's an important phrase. And the point is, is that the author of kings, the author of the book of, book of kings, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was clearly pointing back to Moses' words of warning that they would do evil in the sight of the, Lord, of the Lord. Their nation would be utterly destroyed if they continued to do evil. Then in Deuteronomy 4, 27-31, Moses gives a further description of what would happen. In, in verse, verses 27-28, he says, The Lord will scatter you among the people, peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, and the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But in Deuteronomy 4.29, he gives a wonderful promise of a future blessing. He says this, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him, if you search for Him, with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, 
you will return to the Lord your God and you will listen to his voice. So there's a, a promise of future blessing to come. In Deuteronomy 4.31, it says, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, or nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he promised, which he swore to them. Now, that statement in Deuteronomy 4.21 then is an allusion back to the golden calf incident. We carefully walked through that this, this past week end of this past sermon, that incident culminated in God making the following declaration in Exodus 34, 6. It says that the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now the people had been had became obstinate very quickly. They they disobeyed very quickly once he gave them the co- the initial covenant. He they became very they became disobedient. They became disobedient literally within forty days of of getting the the first covenant. They broke the covenant, yet God demonstrated the truth that he was a compassionate God by restoring this covenant with them after they disobeyed. This testified of of God's covenant faithfulness and also demonstrated that Israel was, in fact, his special possession. Now, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, Moses reiterated that Israel would be banished to the other nations. But God would restore them and have compassion on them when they returned to Him. Now, in both in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 31, Moses prophesied that they would, in fact, return to the Lord in the latter days. In the latter days. That's again, that is a, that is an important statement. And I'll, I will, as we progress in this series, I will define the latter days to you. Now, I would argue, so we said that Moses, Moses started this. We, we started with Moses. I would argue that the prophet Obadiah expands on Moses' prophecy by saying that in the day, for the day of the Lord, and, and Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. He's speaking now to Edom. Your dealings will return on your head. Now, what he's saying is, in this prophecy, Obadiah is, is prophesying that God would judge Edom, who is a, uh, as an enemy of Israel. And he would also judge the rest of the nations during what he calls the day of the Lord. He also speaks of then the restoration of Israel. Now, the prophet Joel, expands upon Obadiah by showing that Israel would be judged along with the other nations during this coming day of the Lord. And he also gives further detail into their ultimate restoration. Now, you can refer back to last week's sermon if you want more information on, on these prophecies. Now, what I, what I want to point out at this, at this point, and what the reason for all of this is, is I want to point out Israel's spiritual pride. And this is, I believe, a critical point in why we belabored this all, because I want you to, to understand that this is a critical point in truly understanding the book of Jonah. You see, the people of Israel are absolutely thrilled when God speaks of judging the Gentile nations. They are also very happy when God speaks of blessings that he will pour out on Israel. 
yet they don't want to deal with, they don't, they want to ignore any indication that God would show compassion on the Gentiles. They don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with it. And they certainly desire to perish any thought of God's judgment upon themselves. You see, they act as if God's judgment will never come their way. Yet, the writing is on the wall. And the reason why we went through this situation with Jeroboam II and, and, the, and the history and the geography is because they act as if the, that it's never going to happen. Yet, the, the writing's on the wall. Now, as we push forward to act one of this grand drama in Jonah, I want you to see Israel's perspective. This is the entire point that I've been trying to make. In their minds, they are good. They are God's people. Therefore, they, you could say it this way, they are the elite, the elite of all the nations. The Gentile nations, in their mind, are terrible and powerful. As such, why would God ever send, why would God ever show compassion on the Gentiles? Why would God ever send us to them? You see, we are the elite, and we don't want to help them. They're wicked. God loves us, but he hates them. Now, if we understand that, then we'll understand Jonah. Uh, they, they focus on every prophecy that says that Israel will be restored and the nations will be judged. And they truly have a negative outlook toward the nations. You see, God designed Israel to have an international impact. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God had promised Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the entire world. And, and I can read that, that section, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. But then he says this, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yet Israel refuses to carry out that purpose. They use their blessing Instead of using it to take it to the nations and bless the other nations, they used their blessing, the blessing that God gave them, to prove that they were better than every other nation. Now, as we move forward, I want you to think of this obstinate, silly, and misguided prophet named Jonah from northern Israel. I want you to think of him as representing Israel and their hard-headedness, their stupidity, and their wrong-headed responses to Yahweh their God. And as you think of Jonah in this way, I promise you that God's glory will shine even brighter than you could ever imagine. Now we've seen the prologue and the opening act as this amazing drama unfolds, we're going to see Act 1 today, a great storm. We're going to see Act 2, we're going to see the opening scene of Act 2 today, a great fish. And then next time we're going to see Act 3 and Act 4, and we're going to see the closing acts. Now that's a play on words, the closing acts, a great harvest. Today let's look at Act 1, Act 1, a great story, or a great, a great storm, that is. Now, at this point, look at your text in Jonah chapter 1. It says in verse 1, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, now last week we saw that 
that God came to Jonah and gave him a message. Look at Jonah 1-2. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now I should remind you that Nineveh, the great city, is Assyrian. Again, Assyrian and made up of those bad Gentiles. Now that irony, again, shouldn't be lost on us that God is calling Jonah to go to a Gentile nation. They are also a very wicked nation. And he will use that a nation that he will use to scatter the northern kingdom of Israel. Notice that the text says that their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, again, they are a wicked, wicked nation. We can't say that too much. The question, the question is, how eager do you think Jonah was to go to Nineveh for any reason? The answer, he's about as eager as Israel is to be the light to the Gentile nations. Again, think of Jonah and Israel as parallel. You see, Israel is not very eager to go to the Gentile nations, are they? Neither is Jonah. That is to say that Jonah actually refuses to obey. Now, before we move on, look back at the the first two verses. Let me ask you a question. What is missing in those verses? In other words, what was Jonah supposed to say to the people of Nineveh? It says that Jonah is to cry against the city, but it doesn't tell us what he's supposed to say to them. Now, every good drama with multiple acts or multiple shows, if you will, has cliffhangers that bring you back. Now, last week we left off with this as our cliffhanger. In this case, the verses don't tell us what he's supposed to cry against the city. Now, I believe this is purposeful. I believe it's very purposeful. And I believe it's indicative of Jonah's obstinance. Now, you may protest that I'm taking this too far, but I don't think so. I believe, firmly believe, that God actually gave him the message up front. I say that because the message is actually progressively revealed in chapters 3 and 4. If you read down, I'm not going to go there now because I want to progressively reveal this, but if you read down, you will be able to figure out what the actual message was. Now, you may ask, you may be asking, I hope you're asking, why we aren't given the message in in those first two verses. I think it's this. I think that it's because Jonah hated the message. I I think he hated it. I think he hated, I think he hated it. He didn't want to give the message because he knew the results. In other words, he wanted judgment against these Gentiles, not compassion. That was his attitude. Again, go back to Israel. Remember, remember these Assyrians were Gentiles and they were Israel's enemies. In the words of Abner Chow, it's as if Jonah is saying, if I go to them, I'm, I'm aiding and abetting the enemy. Therefore, if I can get God to nuke them, then we'll be okay. End quote. I mean, that's, that's their attitude. They, he wants them to die. He doesn't want them to, to find compassion. So he doesn't want to go and give them the message. Now look down at, at Jonah 1.3. But Jonah rose up to, to, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which is going to Tarshish and paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So what does Jonah do in response to Yahweh? He flees from his presence. 
He, he, he does so in his obstinance. From the time of Adam and Eve, sinning men and women have always done what? They flee, they flee from God's presence. We don't want to be, we don't want to be exposed to the holiness of God in our sinfulness, do we not? Jonah is really no different. There's no difference. In other words, Jonah is breaking rank. And he's doing this his way. Remember, again, I, I, I want to keep reminding you, he is like the nation of Israel. He doesn't want to submit and obey God because he, because he knew better. He knew better how this should go. The, the Gentiles should be judged and certainly not shown compassion and forgiven. Notice... Notice he's going to Tarshish. This is probably a port on the the Spanish coast. More importantly, though, more important to where he's actually going, he, more importantly, he is going in the opposite direction. He's going in the opposite direction. God says, God says, go east. Go east. Jonah goes west. And he's doing this to prevent God's message from being given to the, the Ninevites. Again, I believe he knows that message, and I believe he's trying to prevent it from going to, to, the, to the Gentiles. He's trying to prevent something that he doesn't want to happen. Now, I also want to show you that God says, what? Rise up. Rise up, right? Rise up and go. What does Jonah do? Jonah goes down. He goes down, and he goes down. God wants him to arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah rose up to flee. Then he goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. Now, Jonah is in a spiritual downward spiral that will continue to worsen, to worsen. Again, just like Israel's downward spiral that they are currently in. Jonah, Jonah represents Israel. Isn't this always the case when we flee from God in our sinful endeavors? When we flee from Him, our spiritual condition worsens. Fleeing God and His purpose will always put us in a downward spiral. Always. We end up in a a spiritual depression and, and a spiritual funk, if you will. Yet, God always remains faithful. Now look at Jonah 1.4. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. You see, Jonah plans to flee God. He plans to go in the opposite direction. He goes down when he's supposed to go up, and and yet God has other plans. God literally hurls a supernatural wind on the sea. The sailors with, with him had never seen anything like it. Jonah won't obey God, but the wind and the rain and the waves obey him. Look at Jonah 1, 5, and 6. And the sailors became afraid, and every man did what? They cried to his God, and they threw cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. I mean, this was a bad situation. I mean, they're throwing cargo in. I mean, that's that's money. And yet, they're throwing it in because they knew that if they didn't do something, that this ship was about to break up. It's, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, it actually says the ship was thinking it was going to break up. It's thinking that it was going to break up. But Jonah, though, had gone below into the hold of the ship. Again, he went down. And he had lain down and fallen asleep. Again, he went down. Look at verse 6. So the captain approached him and said, 
How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. You see, Jonah is in such a negative spiritual spiral that this pagan captain is more sensitive to God than God's prophet is. Jonah was called to go to the Gentiles, yet he is wallowing in his sin deep in the belly of this pagan ship. Again, we need to recognize that Jonah's attitude reflects Israel's attitude. Now, I want you to notice that verse 6 is an allusion to verses 1 and 2. Notice that in verses 1 and 2, God came to Jonah. Now who comes to Jonah? The captain, right? God came to Jonah and says, Arise and go to Nineveh. Now the captain says, tells him to get up and call on God. At this point, the Gentile captain is speaking for God. What is prof- what's a prophet supposed to do? A prophet is supposed to speak for God. Now you've got a Gentile captain speaking for God, calling on Jonah to speak to, to Yahweh. Now we shouldn't miss, we shouldn't miss the irony here. This captain is now repeating the same call for Jonah to get up and go. And when Jonah tries, so when Jonah tries to run, Jonah can't get away from God. Now look back at verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on who? Who do you think? Jonah, right? So when the captain came to Jonah, the captain wanted him to call on his God, just like the other sailors were doing. Now, I don't, I'm not sure he recognized any difference at that point, only that Jonah was stupid enough to be sleeping in the hold of the ship when the ship's about to break apart. Then, but then the sailors cast lots, and guess what the lot fell to? It fell to, fell to Jonah. So despite Jonah's obstinance, God plans to fulfill his purpose in Jonah. Again, think back to Israel. Israel is obstinate, yet God will fulfill his plan in them. Now, when the lot fell to Jonah, the sailors instantly knew this was happening on their account. On account, I'm sorry, on his account. Look back at verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us, tell us now. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? I mean, they wanted, they, this is 20 questions, right? I mean, there's not 20 questions, but they wanted to know. They wanted to know what, what was going on here. Why, why was this happening? I mean, they realized, they fully realized this, this was supernatural. This was not normal. And he said, look at verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You see, they were demanding to know his complete story. What you have to understand here is this is serious business. They were about to die, and they knew it, so they were willing to kill the one to blame. That is until they realized... That is until they realized who the one to blame was. Jonah identified as a man from Israel, a Hebrew. Amazingly, Jonah acknowledges that Yahweh, his God, Israel's God, made the sea and the dry land. That's, that's very important because if he made the sea and the dry land, then he controls the storm. 
Ironically, God brought Israel forth to proclaim to all the nations that Yahweh rules over the sea and the dry land, over heaven and earth. They refuse to do it, and Jonah is likewise refusing to do it. Yet here Jonah was proclaiming the power of God to pagan sailors from pagan nations. You see, God is using Jonah despite his obstinance, not despite his obstinance actually, but through his obstinance. You get the point. Jonah is this obstinate prophet, and God through that obstinate is making Jonah do exactly what he meant for him to do in the first place. And we're going to see that all the way through the story. God's purpose will be and will will be accomplished through this disobedient and silly prophet. Jonah had to know that he couldn't thwart God's plan, yet he tried anyway. Jonah would have known the truth of Psalm 139.7 where the, where the psalmist proclaims, where can I flee from Yahweh's presence? He knew he couldn't, yet he tried. He tried. Look at Jonah 1.10. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? Think about that. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. That's an amazing response. You see, these men didn't know the Lord. When they got on the ship, they didn't know the Lord. Yet even they know that you don't mess with him. How much more so a prophet of the Most High? You see, Jonah knew better. And these pagan, these pagan sailors recognized Jonah's folly. They recognized it. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. So they said to him, What should we do, do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea has become increasingly stormy. They understood that, that Jonah held the key to this major problem that they had. They, they knew that, they knew that he had the answer. So they asked him and he said, you know what he said in verse 12? He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. God hurled this great storm on the sea. Now the sailors need to hurl Jonah into the sea. Same word. Same word. Look at verses 13 and 14. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. What an amazing prayer. They didn't want to hurl the Lord's anointed prophet into the sea. Now, ironically, they wanted to show mercy on the one who refused to show mercy. He refused. And I would say they're right to be hesitant, are they not? I mean, he is the Lord's anointed prophet. So they're right to be hesitant. But in this case, it was exactly what they needed to do. Look at verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I would lean toward that they became believers at that point. But either way, I do know this. 
they recognize that Yahweh is completely different than their gods. They realize, they come to realize that he truly did make heaven and earth, the land and the sea. And they feared him greatly. Now this reminds me of an incident involving our Lord Jesus from the Gospels. In Luke 8, 22, Jesus and the disciples got into a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. Now just listen to the echoes of Jonah in Luke's account. Listen to Luke 8, 23 and 24. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, just like Jonah. But he's not like Jonah. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Again, they came to Jesus, or to Jesus and woke him up, just like Jonah was woken by the captain. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Mark's account says in Mark 4, 38-39, that Jesus was in, a, in the stern asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Now listen to Luke 8, 25 and 26. And he, this is the Lord Jesus, said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? In Jonah 1, it was clearly Yahweh who made the sea stop its raging. Yet in the Gospels, Gospels it is Jesus who calms the sea. You see, the disciples were fearful of the wind and the waves. Then they became fearful and amazed at the one who had ultimate power over the winds, the wind and the waves. Jesus, the Son of God. God, very God. In Jonah, he demonstrated his power by calming the storm. And in the Gospels, he did exactly the same. Back in Jonah... I hope you're seeing a, a pattern emerge. Everywhere that Jonah goes, the pagans are turning to God. And he runs away so that they won't turn to God, but everywhere he goes, they begin to turn to God. Jonah cannot escape God's purpose for the Gentiles. He cannot escape God's purpose for him. He tries, but it, he, it's no, of no use. In the case of Jonah, he, he stubbornly went to Joppa and to a pagan ship, and God used him anyway. In the case of Israel, they stubbornly went against God's will that they blessed the families of the earth, yet God will fulfill his purpose in them. At this point, they, the clock is ticking. They are headed to exile, yet God's purposes would be fulfilled. You see, Jonah was going to Nineveh one way or the other. And Israel was going to go to the Gentiles one way or the other. This brings us to the closing scene in Act 1, which becomes the opening scene in Act 2. Look at your text. Jonah 1.17 And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So, 
one way or the other, Jonah's going to the Gentiles. And God makes sure that he's doing so, or that he will do so. And I leave you with another cliffhanger as we look, we'll look next time at this act to a great fish. Let me pray as we transition our time to uh, communion. Our gracious Lord and Father, we thank you this, this morning as we finish out this first chapter of Jonah. What an amazing story this is. And as we go along, Lord, as we see how you are acting through this prophet and how your will and purposes will be done and cannot be thwarted. Lord, pray, I pray that you would be brought glory, that we would see your glory shine through. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.